Welcome to Chinuch Today. I am your host, Rabbi Yerachmiel Garfield. Please join me as we highlight innovative ideas and inspiring people from the world of Chinuch. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chinuch Today. Shaking it up once again, as we love to do at Chinuch Today podcast. This is Yerachmiel Garfield, and today I am just going to speak about something that I've put a lot of thought into and really plays a very important role in my understanding of Chinuch and the way that I interact with students and our school, and I would love to share it with the wider audience. And that is the three basic principles, or as I call them, the foundational principles of education. And they are, number one, children are good and they want to do good. Number two, if they are not doing good, there's a reason. Number three, it's the job of the adults in the child's life to identify and address that reason. And so I know it sounds maybe a little on the basic side, but I believe that if we focus on these three values, we focus on this mantra, that many, many problems that take place in the school are able to be solved. It takes a little time because sometimes the problems are complicated. But ultimately, you don't get distracted with uh, secondary issues or caught up in rules and regulations and, and processes that don't really get at the actual issue. And over time, this approach has been proven to be true over and over and over again. That if you have a child who's struggling, I don't care what the behavior is, the misbehavior, the dysfunction, there is a reason. And unless we take the time, and it's sometimes difficult, and sometimes it's not so clear, but unless we take the time to identify that reason, we're shooting in the dark, and our intervention is not going to be effective. I remember when I first started teaching for the Nary Srell John Hopkins cohort, the first course I would open up with was about one of my favorite Sherlock Holmes stories. I believe it's called The Red-Headed League. You can fact check that one. It's a story about a Sherlock Holmes story that really is so mysterious. It starts with a ad in the newspaper looking for redheads to come work on a project. And the redheads show up and they're just asked to do some benign act, I believe like copy over the encyclopedia or the dictionary. And slowly Sherlock Holmes finds this very intriguing, of course, what's going on with this redheaded league and why was it brought? I don't want to ruin the... Uh, punchline for all of the Sherlock Holmes readers, but I would advise that you go out and read. It's a great story. But the point is that when you read a Sherlock Holmes mystery, we know that there is a resolution. We know it. In fact, it's one of his cardinal rules there is that I forgot the expression, but that the way he analyzes the problem is by separating what could possibly be and then slowly going through each scenario until it's left with whatever is left, no matter how unprobable it is. And that's how he solves the mystery, something along those lines. But anyway, the point being, and the point that I was making to the students in the Nary Israel cohort was the job of a real mechanach is to figure that out to be a Sherlock Holmes in the life of the child that understands children are good. That is not something that's optional. It's not like children are bad. There's no way that the, the child is trying to be bad, trying to misbehave, trying to cause dysfunction. 
And and to the extent that he looks like he's doing that, it's because there's something in his life, his or her life, that is not being addressed. And to the extent that we're able to address that, the problem will be resolved. I remember I learned this very early on in my career when I was a school counselor and a parent called me and was concerned that all of a sudden their child's behavior was off. They didn't know why and the teacher was complaining and I was reflecting on it. And I said, well, let's talk about the kid's life. What's going on in the kid's life? You know, we were going through different things and she mentioned she was expecting. I said, oh, that's good. And how will that impact your your son? He was like third or fourth grade. I said, well, he's going to have to move in a room with his younger sibling. And I said, well, did you ever talk to the kid about that or what that's going to mean or what that's going to look like? And it turns out that that was the issue. The child had anxiety because of this impending move and what it's going to mean to him. And they talked about it and showed him how it's going to be and his behavior calmed down. And I'm not saying that every scenario is obviously not that simple, but that is an example of the kind of cause and effect that happens in a child's life. Any major news, any change, any dysfunction could be a trigger that causes a child to misbehave. Another extreme example that I use in my Hopkins class that I will uh, share here is the Iceman. You could Google the Iceman. He is in um, YouTube somewhere. And the Iceman is a crazy, crazy example. Um, So crazy, so difficult that you probably have a hard time even having me describe it because it's going to be like, no way, it can't be. But this is true. The Iceman was a mafia killer, okay? And he has killed so many people, he lost count. Now, the documentary about the Iceman is a little violent because they have pictures of some of the crime scenes, etc. But the Iceman essentially was in jail for life for killing all these people. And in some deal with HBO many years ago, they brought in a psychologist to interview him and to understand the Iceman. And so I show this to the Hopkins class, so powerful. And you start off with such disdain for the Iceman. I mean, this is a man who killed people. You know, it's horrible. He's just uh, brutal. The way he killed and why he killed and how he killed is just all the worst of the worst. But slowly, by watching this documentary and hearing about his childhood and his father, who I believe was an alcoholic and abusive, and his mother, who was also horrible in the way she treated him, and his own self-perception and the things he went through and watching him sort of describe his development as a human being, I wouldn't say you have mercy for him. A person still, you know, has disdain for a human being who could do so much damage and cause so much pain. But... You understand them. You could you say to yourself, wow, that guy had it rough. I can understand how he became the Iceman. I see where it came from. I don't question that law enforcement had to do what they had to do with him. But who knows in Shemayim, his level of responsibility, and if he was considered bad in that sense, the guy was conditioned by his crazy parents to be crazy. And it's very clear in watching that. You could you could find that on YouTube probably still, but I do caution you that some of the pictures of the crime scenes are a little graphic. But see how you think when you finish watching the hour with the psychologist and the Iceman, if perhaps there is a place for, I don't know if it's mercy, but understanding for where the Iceman came from. So I say to my students, you know, do you think your Talmud 
is going to be worse than the Iceman. You know, the same way we could dig, dig deep and find that place of understanding for him. I hope we can find understanding for any child who's misbehaving. So part of the, I would say, the skill or the academic aspect of being a great educator is really understanding all the potential triggers because they come in a lot of different shapes and forms for what would cause a child to have a challenge. I mean, one of the things could easily be an academic trouble. Being asked to perform when you can't, when you have a disproportional weakness in an area, is extremely triggering. I mean, I don't know about how many adults could handle that feeling of being in a room with a lot of other people who are all able to perform, and for whatever reason, you know, no fault of yours, you just do not have that capacity, but no one fully realizes that you don't have that capacity. So that everyone treats you like you should be able to perform, even though you have some dysfunction that's making you unable to perform academically. There is an organization here in Houston that came to our school and, and did these simulations of what it's like to have certain types of learning disorders. And here we are, a room of adults, right? A room of teachers, of educators who are supposedly understanding of these type of things. And we know that we're in a simulation, we know that we were, we're at a professional development day and we know we're in a simulation. We brought in this organization to help us understand what it feels like and they gave us these tasks and the level of frustration. The teacher's exhausted, like saying out loud, oh, and embarrassed that they can't do these things. And the feeling of emotional stress was so great. And that's in that environment. Now, take away the fact that we're adults. And we understand the world and we understand that we have strengths and weaknesses and we're mature. Take away the fact that we are teachers who understand that education and people have strengths and weaknesses. Take away the fact that it was a professional development day and we don't, you know, we know that they're what they're doing. So it's a regular classroom. And put yourself in the in the seat of a nine-year-old boy or girl who's being asked to do a task. And everyone else could do it. That's another thing. In the professional development that we had, everyone was struggling. Some were a little better than others at some of these tasks, but generally speaking, everyone was struggling. Put yourself in a situation where you're the only one who has that dysfunction. Wow. You know, talk about a trigger. What's a child going to do? You know, say, excuse me, I find this task quite difficult. You know, that takes tremendous maturity. Rather, they do is they act out. They say, this is stupid. I don't want to even try. And the teacher says what? Don't be lazy. Come on, just try it. And the student says, this is stupid. I hate this stuff. It's so boring. And that's exactly the conversation. What's really going on? It's too hard for the kid. He has some kind of challenge. And that's where getting a high-quality educational evaluation becomes so critical because often it opens up the key. It often gives us, as the educators, the key to where the academic difficulties are that are causing this child to have such a strong reaction. But there is one thing that it's not. The kid is not lazy and he's not trying to be difficult and he's not angry. He is reacting to his reality. And there are so many different aspects of academic triggers. There's reading issues and writing issues and expression issues and understanding issues, auditory processing. There's fine motor difficulties with writing. There's OT, PT, a whole range of things, of course, speech, language, 
many, many things that could cause a child to struggle. And what is really interesting when you're looking at disorders and and, um, diagnosis is there has to be a certain amount of differentiation between areas of strength and areas of weakness. Meaning if you have a child who's weak across the board, that's not a diagnosable disorder. That's just a child who's weak across the board. And what's interesting is often those kids do fine. They're okay doing poorly. They don't act out. Sure, we need to help them and we need to find ways to educate them, but they're not going to express themselves with the level of dysfunction. But if you have a child who has peaks of strength, certainly in the areas of IQ and, and uh, ability to understand things or verbal, like he really could be you know, expressive and, and intellectually understands what's happening, and then has areas of weakness when it comes to performance, those are the children that really act out because they feel inside so out of whack. Like they know they're smart and that they know they should be able to perform. And yet when they look at their peers who are not necessarily as strong as them in many of these areas, they're outperforming them. So how are they supposed to like make sense of that in their minds? How are they supposed to come to terms with that? They don't. And they end up acting out often. And that's you know what we're talking about. And that's why when it comes to getting a diagnosis and going for an evaluation, and I always try to help parents understand why that's so important. And one other note on that, it's not an area to go cheap, even though one could, and there are you know different ways to get evaluated. I always try to encourage parents to try their best to get a high quality evaluation. Because like anything, if you don't know what the problem is and you don't have a deep understanding of what the challenge is, it's really hard to fix it. So a lot of times when parents are in this, they might not appreciate why getting a high quality diagnosis is worth it. And it could cost literally thousands of dollars more than the low quality one or one through the school system. But because that information is going to provide the key to helping that child succeed, that good child who wants to do good and something's getting in his way, his or her way, it's so important that we get the best possible evaluation available. So that could be, it could be an academic thing. And then there's the whole emotional slash behavioral stuff. ADHD, is ADHD real? Absolutely. I've had so many examples of kids that have come through my educational world who struggle mightily with that. And it's not only about medication, although medication is certainly one of the most effective interventions that really could change the life of a child. And of course, many parents are skeptical of medication. They're scared of medication. They say, well, it's going to be a gateway to drugs. But you know what another gateway to drugs is? Being depressed and unsuccessful in school. That's also a gateway to drugs because often these children just feel so off. They know that they're smart. They know they're creative. They know they're capable. They just can't focus. They just can't perform. And over years of that, it makes them feel just like such a failure. They can't gain any traction in our system. And that also leads to a lot of dysfunction. So medication doesn't work for everybody. There are kids who have tried medication and it makes them feel really uncomfortable. It could trigger other things like anxiety. Listen, medication is not simple. Not saying everyone, you know, just medication, medication. But I'm addressing, I guess, the parents who feel that medication is something to avoid at all costs. I wouldn't say that. But ADHD is definitely a very real cause for a child who could be wonderful and do well to be dysfunctional. There's also the autism spectrum stuff. And there's just many, many different things that could be causing that. And then finally, there's the conditioning. 
Shalom bias challenges, a sibling who is bullying them, other things in their life, moving or whatever, financial or medical challenges in the family. There could be so many other reasons that could cause a child to feel emotionally off in a way that he or she cannot perform in school. I just say this all to get back to the main point, that every child is good and wants to do good, fundamentally. Now you could say, well, what's your source for that? And it's an interesting conversation. I actually had a similar conversation with Rabbi Daniel Kalish and uh, got in a little trouble with some of his Talmudim when I pushed him on this. But for me, for me, the strongest source, without getting into Chazal, is that I've been teaching for 23 years. I've been a Chinook, something like that. And I've dealt with thousands and thousands of kids. I've never just met a bad kid. I have yet to meet a kid who does not want to do good. So maybe you know someone. I'm just telling you my statistics, my experience. I've never, ever met a child who does not have a deep desire to do good, period. So that I find to be a basic approach. And I'll tell you the truth is, it's true about the adults in my life too. The teachers all want to do good. They want to be the best teachers they can. No one's trying to be a bad teacher. If they're struggling with a child, there's a reason they're struggling. It could be something in their own life or it could be something between them and the child or the parent. And parents also want to do good, and they're trying the best for their kids, and they want to be there. I think that we have to just recognize everyone in the system, but especially the child who's mostly misunderstood, but everyone is just trying to be good and do good. And no one is causing dysfunction for no reason. If a child is being dysfunctional, there's a reason. And finally, it's the job of the adults in that child's life. The child can't figure it out themselves. They're not going to self-diagnose <laughs> with dyslexia. They're not going to say, well, I really have trouble with short-term memory, etc." or I might have ADHD. They don't know. They're victims of their own condition. So therefore, it's the job of the adults in the child's life to help them. I will say, as children get older, I would say into teenagers, into high school and beyond, the child could play a role in identifying the problem. You know, and they, they do need to be part of the identification and the solution. But in, in the younger age, and just like a baby who's crying, no one asks the baby, why are you crying? Is it that you're hungry or do you need a new diaper? We understand that the child does not have the sophistication or the language to self-explain, to self-diagnose their trouble. And that's true about a nine-year-old who's struggling in school. That nine-year-old child is no different than the baby in his or her awareness of the different triggers that could be causing the dysfunction in their environment, generally speaking. They don't know about the different academic weaknesses, emotional or social weaknesses, or areas of deficit that could be causing them dysfunction. So I challenge my listeners, my beloved listeners of the Clean Up Today podcast, to think about this, these values, to put forth, whenever you're dealing with children in an educational environment or as a parent, to always say, I know the child is good. I know they want to do good. If they're not performing, there's a reason. And let me take the time to do the hard work of identifying and then addressing the reason. And I am telling you, with the full Garfield guarantee, that if you approach the challenges of education with this model, success will come. It takes some time, it costs some money, but ultimately, if we're able to fully address the fundamental issues at play, we will be setting our children up for a long life of success. If we're able to solve these issues young, identify and address the issues when they are in their developmental stages, 
it will help avoid much more serious issues later and set them on a path of success. And they will see us, our school, the chinuch that we're trying to give them in a positive light, not in a painful, negative light, which one feels when they're being asked to do things that you can't do. Nothing produces burnout faster than that with expectations on a person without the ability to perform. So let's stop doing that to our kids. Let's embrace these Garfield's three principles of Chinuch, which are, say them with me, children are good and they want to do good. If they're not doing good, there's a reason. And it's the job of the adults in the child's life to identify and address the reason. And I hope that by sharing this with you here, it will further spread this message, which I have found to be so true again and again and again. And the Mirz Hashem help more children. And I put this out to my listeners that if you're in a situation in a case when you just can't crack it, even with you put on your Sherlock Holmes hat and even take out a pipe and you still can't crack the code, why is this happening? There are some great resources out there. You could contact me at chinooktodaypodcast at gmail.com and I would be happy to either help you brainstorm myself or try to find someone. We have some really wonderful machanchim out there to try to find someone who can help us together to identify and address the needs of this child. Thank you for joining us. As you know, sharing is caring, so please continue to share our podcast. And I look forward to being back in the future with a regular Chinuch Today podcast, back to a wonderful guest about a wonderful idea in Chinuch. Wishing you well. This is your Achmiel Garfield. Have a wonderful day.